Neves Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution. Welcome to The Parent Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Cathy Weston. And I'm Shirley Heyman. And if you're if you're sensitive to uh, sensitive topics, it's probably a time to turn off <laughs> because we're talking all about well vaginas tonight and bladders and all the things that might possibly maybe need a little bit of correction and help restorative help after having children. So we're joined. We're very very lucky to be joined by a top gynaecologist this evening called Andrew Hexel. As many of you have made me aware during the day, he's your gynaecologist. He's very, very um, local, um, lives locally, works locally, and uh, we're very lucky to have him answering all your questions this evening. Andrew was appointed to the West Hearts Hospital's NHS Trust as a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist 14 years ago, and he's the clinical lead for, very tricky word, urogynecology, the treatment of female bladder problems and prolapse for West Hertfordshire, and also has very special interests in the treatment of pelvic pain and period problems. And he also works uh, with other uh, clinicians and has clinics in Hemel, in Watford. I think you also work in St Albans, Andrew? Yes, that's right. That's where our main base is. We, we have clinics there and uh, operating sessions. And you work on the labour ward in Watford and you have an interest as well in postnatal problems, including vaginal soreness, prolapse and incontinence. So... Well, Shirley, there's a lot to <laughs> there's a lot to get through tonight, isn't it? Everybody wants their questions answered. Absolutely, and I can imagine that um, Andrew's probably quite a popular dinner guest That's around the right. table. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, everyone likes, likes to have a dinner party story, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it must be quite discreet. When yeah. you're at parties, do you not have women saying, "Andrew, can I just have five minutes with you and ask you all these questions"? <laughs> Well, sometimes you have that, and your auntie sort of wants to have a little word with you about her bladder problems and so on. But, but most times, if uh, if someone recognises me, they're, they're dying of embarrassment. They, they're, they're blushing. Yes. They, they're keen to see, keep off um, gynaecological topics, really. <laughs> so I think we should start with the basics about w what does a gynaecologist do? And I should, I certainly wouldn't be clear about the difference between a gynaecologist and an obstetrician. So can you tell us what are the what's the whole sort of gamut of things that you would look at? Well, it's a great job, really, because we have a uh, tremendous variety in our job. On the one hand, we do obstetrics, which is uh, looking after pregnant ladies and, and uh, seeing them in the antenatal clinic and helping with their delivery. But also, we work in the gynaecology clinic where we can see people with period problems, uh, vaginal issues, uh, infertility, sometimes cancer. As well as offering consultations, we can then go through to the theatre uh, and do some surgery. Sometimes simple things like uh, DNCs or treatment for periods, uh, more complicated keyhole surgery, even hysterectomy and vaginal repair. So we're very lucky that no days no days the same, and uh, yeah, we can help women in many different ways. And what would you say? Like the the most amount of your time is spent on any one of those particular issues? Would you say? Well, to start off with, with your training, you spend a lot of time on labour ward, helping ladies in labour. You might do forceps deliveries, cesarean sections, and so on. But after a while, you, you become more specialised. So some people might become uh, infertility specialists. Some people might be cancer uh, consultants. But I've actually developed a special interest in, in urogynecology, as you mentioned. And that's really the treatment of female bladder problems, including uh, urine incontinence, 
urgency was where you got the sudden desire to go for a wee infections and then often associated with that is some vaginal issues uh, including prolapse and prolapse is really where people got the sensation that something is dropping or falling out of the vagina and they might feel a lump or a swelling down below which is making them feel uncomfortable so I've become quite specialized in, in, in urogynecology and I spend the majority of my time doing that now rather than delivering babies and I have to ask you know are, are, are all of those vaginal issues that you've described are as a direct result of natural birth or women who have cesareans are they as as susceptible to those kinds of issues well the majority of ladies you see with with a prolapse with a with a bulge in the vagina have had vaginal deliveries it can still happen even if you haven't but uh, it's most common if you've had the vaginal birth particularly if you had a large baby uh, a long labor perhaps an instrumental delivery like a von twos or forceps uh, those are also called risk factors which make it more likely as far as bladder problems are concerned, well, having a cesarean section does reduce your risk of getting stress incontinence. That's leakage with coughing, sneezing, exercise, and so on. So if you were to have uh, one baby, having a cesarean section would reduce your risk of stress incontinence. But if you have three cesarean sections, you've more or less got the same risk as someone having three vaginal births. And that means it's not all about the, the delivery. A lot of uh, bladder problems are due to the pregnancy itself, the pressure of having the baby on the bladder, uh, for nine months, uh, a time where you've got sort of hormones relaxing uh, your pelvic floor muscles and so on. Now, if we just sort of stall it there in pregnancy, when you're dealing with the pregnancy, and we've all heard we should be doing our pelvic floor during pregnancy, a lot of women have done it. It didn't really, it wasn't that effective. What would you say to pregnant women listening about the what they should be doing and watching for as well? What's normal during pregnancy in terms of leakage and what isn't? Well, it's good to do some pelvic floor exercises during pregnancy, but sometimes they don't work because it's very hard to identify your own muscles. So some research studies have shown that maybe one in three ladies um, can't identify them, or if they can, they're actually doing the wrong thing. So rather than squeezing the muscles, they're actually pushing down and uh, putting more pressure on the, on the vagina and pelvic floor. So that may be why they're not that effective. So it's good to do some during pregnancy, and certainly after the baby's born, uh, it can reduce the risk of getting some stress incontinence. We used to say you had to do 50 exercises a day or 100 or, or 500 even, but now uh, things have been simplified. You just need to do uh, three sets of contractions. So um, You need to do eight contractions three times a day. So perhaps some quick squeezes and then some longer holds to try and strengthen the muscles. That's, that's all that you need, as well as perhaps some triggers. Uh, so, for example, if you, if you listen to the news on the radio or pass a traffic light, you may do some extra contractions at that time. Okay. And that, that can probably reduce the risk of... Uh, uh, of stress leakage. Of course exercises are a bit boring and it, you have a surge of enthusiasm and it's quite hard to keep it going so although some studies have shown doing intensive exercises after birth can reduce the risk of leakage after a few weeks, after about a year most people have sort of stopped doing them and it doesn't seem to make that much difference in the long term. And if you haven't ever given birth what are the chances of having that kind of leakage just because of, of growing older? Well, the, the, the risks are smaller, but we still do see some people who've never had sexual intercourse or never even had a baby who can get uh, stress incontinence. Um, that may be because they've developed some weakness of the pelvic floor muscles or they might have some inherent weakness of their, of their skin or muscle or the collagen which holds everything together, uh, which allows them to develop some weakness underneath the bladder and then they get some stress incontinence. Uh, as a consequence. And you've men mentioned muscle weakness and uh, one of the most fascinating things we discussed earlier outside the studio was the use of Botox as a remedy for incontinence, is that correct? 
Yes, well, I sort of mentioned stress incontinence to start off with, which is the leaking with coughing, sneezing, exercise. But when we're talking to patients, we, we're particularly interested to hear whether they have this symptom called urgency. Now, most people will gradually get the feeling they want to go to the toilet, and then at a suitable time, they'll visit the lavatory. When you get urgency, you get this sudden compelling desire to go for a wee. So it comes out of the blue, and you have to really race to the toilet, otherwise you're fearful of, uh, of leaking. And sometimes the bladder can squeeze so powerfully to give the urgency that it forces all the urine out. And, and ladies can have really embarrassing situations where they, they can wet themselves in front of their friends, uh, soak their clothes and have to go home from, from work or, or social function. It really can be quite distressing for them. Okay, so we're going to move on. I've asked all my questions. We're going to move <laughs> on to, to listener questions now. Shirley, do you want to kick us off with the first one? I will, thank you. So, Andrew, um, we had uh, Rebecca from Wellin call in, or well, email in, and she says, um, I want to know if there's any truth between breastfeeding hormones being responsible for a decreased, um, you know, drive to, to have intercourse after, after children. Is this true? Are there any other psychological reasons for it? She knows that obviously sleep deprivation, being busy, would play a part in that as well. Um, you know, do, do you have any sort of tips or advice on that? Well, first of all, Rebecca, I'd like to reassure you that it is normal not to really want to have intercourse straight after having a baby. I mean, it's difficult because uh, some patients uh, will say that their friends are having intercourse after a few weeks, but. The majority of research studies have shown it takes uh, many ladies several months before they start having sex again. So don't feel uh, bad or guilty if you're not having intercourse within uh, the first six months of having a baby. When, you, when you're breastfeeding, you would have thought your hormone levels were really high. But in fact, the opposite is uh, the, uh, the case. The breastfeeding shuts down the ovaries. You, you don't ovulate. You have lower estrogen levels. Uh, and, and then the consequence of that, you, you're less likely to... Um, uh, want to have sex and added into that of course is, is the tiredness of, of looking mm. after a young baby getting up during the night uh, as well as having to do all your sort of normal daily uh, jobs so it is normal to, to like desire to have intercourse for the first few months but bees again be reassured that that will return over time it's uh, it's just a normal thing of course your body doesn't really want you to get pregnant straight away so this is a, a sort of natural defense mechanism um to stop you falling pregnant uh, within a few months of your of your birth. So it's perfectly normal and when she stops breastfeeding should her libido come back and if so over what time? Yes when you stop breastfeeding then your ovaries start working again you start ovulating and when you're ovulating that means the body's sort of ready for another pregnancy so probably in a few weeks of stopping breastfeeding you uh, you probably get your desire again. Of course it's dependent on other factors it is a little complicated libido in ladies um, you know, if, you, if you're sleeping well, if you haven't got any family stresses, and so on, you, you have more desire to have intercourse. So and that should also. What improve. would you say to dads listening? Granted, we're all women here. We have a particular view <laughs> on the, you know, the amount. You know, it's easier said than done, isn't it? To if you don't want to have sex for six months after you've had a baby, well, women are under a lot of pressure to keep everybody happy. And how would you advise men and women to deal with that? Well, I say to the, the fathers, obviously try and be patient and understanding. Uh, your wife may not be wanting to have intercourse with you um, because she, well, it's not because she doesn't love you or, or like you or, or, or find you attractive. It's probably just a, a natural thing that she's, she's tired, um, the libido's gone down because of the breastfeeding. And in fact, she may have some soreness down below. A lot of ladies, when they're breastfeeding, can develop some soreness in the vagina. You have lower estrogen levels in the body. Um, some people get flushes and sweats. Actually, it can make the vagina quite sore as well. So that may also be putting them off having sex. So I'd reassure the men that it's not 
due to them that uh, the lady doesn't want to have intercourse. It's probably just a, a natural, a natural thing going on, and it will improve over time. Okay, happy Shirley. Yeah, well, just sorry, one more thing. Um, what about women who decide to breastfeed right through to the child's two, three? You know, do you think that means it's likely that they're going to not want to have sex for that time? If you said it's when you stop breastfeeding that things will improve. Well, I think they probably would want to have intercourse before two years if mm. they were breastfeeding that long. Because uh, over time you do start to, uh, your ovaries do start to wake up and you start ovulating again. Right. I say that because breastfeeding alone isn't a particularly reliable form of contraception, so some people uh, will fall pregnant even when they're breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. I guess we all know cases uh, like that. Mm. Thank you. Now, on the subject of sort of how women are feeling after birth, um, we had a listener question earlier about body dysmorphia. Is that the correct pronunciation? About if, if after birth or during pregnancy and the sort of the effect that that might have, you know, that distortion of how you feel about your body. And if you come across it in your practice as a gynaecologist? Well, because some women do become distressed uh, by the consequences of being pregnant. They, they may... Um, they get stretch marks, uh, the, the tummy's not quite so firm as it was, and they may have uh, changes in the vagina. It never quite looks the same, of course. Um, I mean, it, it goes back to, to some normality, but it, after it's been stretched by a large baby coming through the vagina, then there's always some looseness of the skin, and it's never quite so tight. So some people are unhappy with that. And what, what can you do about the sort of the mental, is that a psychiatric issue when a woman doesn't feel, it, she never recovers her confidence about her body and herself beyond pregnancy in a way that could be described as body dysmorphia? Well, a lot of people uh, feel better when you reassure them that the vagina actually looks normal for someone who's just had a baby. It's actually quite hard to see what's going on inside the vagina and uh, you can quite easily think the worst. But if they're seen by their own uh, practice nurse or, or GP or, or a gynaecologist, often they'll be able to reassure them that um, no, no serious damage has been done. Another, um, sorry, Andrew, another question, kind of linking to what we're talking about, is that people were wondering, or a lady asked, you know, is it possible to have reconstructive work on your vagina to increase sexual pleasure after having had a baby, or is that not the case in England? Well, of course, if some damage has been done to the vagina, then there are there's some very good uh, local services uh, in West Hertfordshire, St Albans, Hamel, Watford, and, and, and further afield, of course, uh, to, to repair any damage. So if there has been some tearing of the vagina, uh, some weakness or laxity, then we can do vaginal repairs uh, to fix that. But it's not something somebody could just say, I feel like having it because... Yeah, and get on the NHS. Yeah, you'd have to pay privately. No, not necessarily. Uh, there's the same treatments available on the NHS as privately. If a lady came along with uh, uh, distressing symptoms or, or problems with her vagina, then we'd be, we'd be happy to help. I mean, sometimes uh, they say they don't feel anything during intercourse. At the time, they, they feel a lump or a swelling or something dropping out. They can have associated bladder or bowel problems. And then we, we're happy to do the, the surgery to, to correct that. But we always warn ladies that if we do do a vaginal repair, which is, which is largely tightening the vagina, that they may not have the same sensation before they have a baby because if there's been any nerve damage, then the, the sensation may not be carried back to the body in quite the same way. The, their partner might feel more, but they may not feel mm. exactly the same as they did mm. uh, when they were younger. And this might be a really silly question, but can, if, the nerve is, if the nerves are damaged in the vaginal area or whatever, wherever they are, they are um, can acupuncture or something like that bring them back? Is there any sort of way of restoring that feeling? Not really, but if you get a lack of sensation in the first six months after a delivery, then sometimes that can return because it takes the nerve fibres 
uh, about six months or so to to recover. So if you're not feeling anything in the first few weeks, don't despair. Things might improve. And in fact, this won't be another reason for doing pelvic floor exercises. It's actually good for your sex life. Uh, those are the muscles you squeeze or contract when you're when you're having intercourse. So if you do some pelvic floor exercises, perhaps with the help of physiotherapists, that alone might improve uh, your sex life rather than resorting to surgery. And you mentioned bowel problems there, Andrew. What sort of bowel problems are you, you know, referring to? Well, it's quite common to get a weakness of the, of the back wall of the vagina. Uh, that's particularly stretched when you're having a baby. And, of course, that's right next to the bowel. And it, it's not, it's not uh, uncommon for ladies to have some difficulty emptying their bowels after... Uh, childbirth, particularly if they've got a little prolapse. A prolapse of the back wall of the vagina is called a rectocele. It's a prolapse of the, of the rectum. So some people have to sit on the toilet and, and, and strain. In fact, some people actually have to put their fingers in the vagina to support the vagina. That's a process called digitation or using your digits. So, so it, it is common to, to have associated bowel problems and blood problems at the same time. Andrew, is there any way that a woman can, I don't know, look at her vagina or, or you know, and, and recognise that there's an issue there, maybe not necessarily related to having had a baby, you know, so what, what, what um, signs are there that there could be some unhealthy, um, you know, I don't know, something going on that they might need to seek advice? Well, I don't think we would particularly encourage self-examination unless you actually had any symptoms. Because some people come to see us and say, well, I've looked in the mirror and my vagina looks different uh, compared to before I had a baby. Yeah. And we say, well, what way does it look different? And they hadn't actually looked at it beforehand. So it's quite hard to, to assess if there's any problem with yourself. So I'd only really recommend that if you're actually having a specific symptom, such as uh, soreness or dropping or, or bulging. Um, so... I don't think you need to be worried that everyone should be checking the vagina to see no. if they have a prolapse. You, you might come to the wrong conclusions. So in general terms, if you're feeling, if you're feeling uh, good about yourself, if you're feeling comfortable, there's no dropping, dragging, excessive discharge, unexpected bleeding, you can be reassured that you're unlikely to have a problem with the vagina and you don't need to go searching inside to see if there's anything wrong. Okay, thank you. That's very reassuring. And what about eating? Is there anything that particularly improves the health of that area of a woman's body? Nothing really directly, but it is quite common after the menopause to have vaginal problems. So some people uh, feel some soreness down below, perhaps with intercourse, uh, the vagina might become dry. Uh, this is due to a lack of estrogen hormone. You don't need to have sort of formal HRT tablets or, 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 uh, or patches, but uh, you can use creams or pessaries in the vagina. So some people as an alternative to formal HRT as well might use some herbal supplements, particularly things uh, containing soya products which have got a little bit of oestrogen. I mean, that might help a little bit, but if you've got significant problems, you probably should see your GP right. and talk to them about their uh, uh, vaginal oestrogen cream or tablets. So those vaginal oestrogen creams and things, are these things that you can buy in boots? You know, uh, there seem to be lots of things like that in female care, whatever the label is in boots. You know, can you sort of just... I mean, they don't see. It. I think women would think it's a bit odd to do to sort of apply those creams in that area. Well, they're they're more uh, moisturisers, really. Oh right. Um, to actually get oestrogen, you need a prescription from your doctor. Right. It's a very safe thing to use. It's uh, it's an extremely low dose, and hardly any of it's absorbed into your body. But it can really improve the vaginal skin and make uh, intercourse more comfortable. It gives you more um, uh, more moisture as well. So Shirley, boots in Harpenden and St Albans will be out of oestrogen cream tomorrow. <laughs> in ready f readiness for the weekend <laughs> brilliant well, right it, it shouldn't really be used just as a, as <laughs> oh, a, sorry, as a, yeah. as a lubricant it shouldn't be used as a lubricant it's not okay. a lubricant but it's actually quite common for ladies <laughs> to have to use some lubricants particularly as they get older 
Okay. Uh, we, we'd advise probably not to use KY jelly, which is a water-based lubricant. And if once water is absorbed, you're left with this sticky substance, which isn't very pleasant. So mm. there's a couple that we, we recommend, I guess we're allowed to say. Uh, one's called Silk, S-Y-L-K. And the other one's Yes, with an exclamation mark, uh, which is apparently quite good. Thank you. That's Sorry, are those practical. just things to help intercourse that the man uses, or...? Yes, I mean, either the man can put it on the end of his penis or the lady can just insert it a little bit herself. If she's embarrassed about that, she could apply it a little bit before, before she starts sexual activity without telling her husband. Thank you. Right, looking at the younger end then, would you um, still stand by what certainly when I was a young child, I was told, not young child, but, you know, teenager, that if you start the contraceptive pill too young, i.e., the doctors used to say sort of at the age of 16 um that it's going to have an adverse effect on your fertility later on in life are they still saying that or have pills changed um no i don't agree with that the pill's perfectly safe and it doesn't really affect the number of uh, eggs you have in your ovaries that's sort of determined when you're in your, your mother's womb and, right. and whether you start taking the contraceptive pill when you're 16 or 20 doesn't really uh, affect that so we'd be quite happy to uh, for, for patients to use a contraceptive pill without having any adverse effect on the fertility at all. What about starting the contraceptive pill for the first time in your 30s or 40s when you haven't used it as a young person? I think for some reason a lot of women associate it with breast cancer, even though you're probably going to say there's no evidence to suggest that. But was there anything to look out for if you start the contraceptive pill later in life? Uh, not particularly. I mean, there's definitely no increased risk of uh, cancer with a contraceptive pill. Otherwise, it would be taken off the market straight away. Um, you have to be slightly more careful when you get into your late 30s taking the contraceptive pill. Uh, your doctor has to make sure that you're not overweight, you haven't got high blood pressure. Otherwise, there'll be a slightly increased risk of getting blood clots in your legs. But for most people, it's, it's a very safe thing, even when you start it at that age group. And the GP can just do an assessment of whether or not you're, you should be on it or not. Yes, that's right. If they're slightly worried about you taking the combined pill containing estrogen and progesterone, they might recommend the mini pill, which is progesterone only, We'll talk to you about alternative forms of contraception, such as uh, a coil. Uh, there's either a normal coil or a coil containing some progesterone hormone called the marina coil, which is particularly good if you're also having problems with heavy periods. Now, on the subject of the coil, because I've got, I can just, um, uh, there, it's, it comes up quite a lot in female conversation, the coil, <laughs> you know, when you, when you get together, because a few people have seemed to get pregnant while they're on it, and there seems to be a bit of, debate about that whether or not it is particularly effective and the other thing is how painful it is to have it inserted in the first place well the coil is as pretty much as effective as being sterilized it's, it's very rare for people to fall pregnant probably less than one in a hundred um, i agree that it can be uncomfortable to have it inserted particularly if you've never had any vaginal births if the surface has never been stretched open by childbirth it can be right uh, slightly uncomfortable um, but sometimes it's still worth trying. It depends really how easy you find vaginal examinations and how easy it is for your GP to see your cervix, particularly during smear tests. If you really want to have a coil and it's not possible in, in the normal clinic, then quite frequently we give patients a short general anaesthetic to insert the coil. And then the coil will stay in place for five to ten years. And, and we could easily remove it if you change your mind and you want to have a, a baby. Uh, you just lie on the couch and we can see a little string coming through the cervix. And we use that to, to remove the coil and then the fertility returns straight away. So I have to say, if you were a woman, Andrew, which one, which contraceptive choice would you make? Would you go for the coil? <laughs> <laughs> well, men not so good at contraception as ladies, but I, I think we'd probably go for the coil rather than being sterilised uh, because uh, it's as effective as sterilisation 
and, and it's reversible. So if you do change your mind or have a change in your personal circumstances, you know, divorce, new relationship, you've still got the option of having a baby uh, rather than being sterilised, which of course is irreversible. And it has no side effects or anything that people need to worry about more than any other? Well, the normal coil can make uh, patients' periods slightly heavier and perhaps sometimes more painful. So um, if that is a problem, then the, the marina coil might be a better option for you. Eight out of ten patients are happy with the marina, but unfortunately two out of ten get some irregular vaginal bleeding or they're aware that the progesterone in the, in the coil is absorbed into the body, so they might feel slightly premenstrual, perhaps a little bit bloated, maybe get some breast tenderness. So they, they, they may choose not to continue the coil for that reason. So you just have to try and see and see how you Yes, before you try it, you're not quite sure whether you're going to be in the 80% of patients who like the coil or the 20% of, of patients who, who don't like it. I mean, I guess you, you've all got friends who've got the coil and some say it's absolutely brilliant. Some people say it was the worst ever. Um, yeah. But the research says 8 out of 10 like it and, and 2 out of 10 don't. Okay. Now, talking about pain, um, we've got quite a few people that have called in and sent messages saying, why are smear tests so painful and is it ever going to be any easier for our daughters? Well, of course, it's not really a natural thing having a smear test. You have to have a, a little instrument put in the vagina called a, called a speculum to try and see the cervix so a, a smear can be taken. So I guess it's probably normal to have some discomfort and, and of course, the embarrassment to go with that. Mm. Um, Quite, quite often in my experience, it's um, the discomfort's because a, a speculum's been used which is too large for the individual patient. So if you are worried that it's, been hurt, it's hurt you previously, then ask the nurse or GP doing it to try a very small speculum and see if they can see the surface with that first. Okay. And if not, they can always go on to a larger speculum. Is it going to get better for our daughters? Well, hopefully. Of course, the vaccination against the, uh, the HPV virus, which is largely associated with abnormal smears, has been introduced mm. over the last few years. So right. Uh, the risk of getting cancer of the cervix or, or abnormal smears is going to reduce. So hopefully with time, uh, smear tests could be phased out. Now, can those H HPV vaccines be used on older women in their 30s and 40s? They, they could be used, but there's probably no point. Once you've started having sexual intercourse, you've been exposed to the risk of having HPV and therefore uh, it's probably too late to have the, the vaccination. So that's why it's really been restricted to, to younger girls who've yet to start having uh, sexual relations. Uh, when when are those vaccines given? In school now or, you know? Uh, yes, I, I'm not sure exactly, but they're given in, in schools. I think it's a sort of opt-out thing. Oh, okay. Uh, for, for girls around about the age of 13. Our guest this evening is Dr. Andrew, Andrew Hexel, gynaecologist. And we've, well, we've been through so many different themes, haven't we, Shirley, already? We have. But we haven't heard yet from a patient who actually has been through um, some treatment for some issues uh, to do with her uh, bladder. So we're going to speak to, um, who are we going to speak to? Eileen now, and we're hoping she is on the telephone. Are you there, Eileen? I am. Good evening. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You're very good. It's a pleasure. Now, tell us a little bit, Eileen, if you wouldn't mind, what age you are, and also what is this? What happened to you? Well, I'm 59 years old, and I've had five children, and my oldest child is 36 and a half, and he weighs five kilos, which in real money or old money is 11 pounds exactly. <gasps> From that moment, from the day he was born when I had a uh, failed forceps and a 
uh, the emergency cesarean because it got stuck. I have had urinary tract infections almost every two to three months for 36 years. I've had lots of other children. I carried twins as well, my last two, which weighed uh, over 12 pounds. And Eileen, can you tell us what it feels like to have, you know, to have that particular infection? Uh, it, there are three aspects to it, I suppose. It's very painful because it stings when you go to the loo. It, 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 it makes one feel constantly under the weather. So you're working and you're doing everything and always conscious that any minute now, whatever you try and do, you wear pure cotton knickers, you drink cranberry juice, you read all about all these things, you do everything you possibly can do, and in the back of your mind you always know that sooner rather than later you're going to have an infection and you'll be back on antibiotics yet again. So you put up with it for such a long time, and presumably you did have some interventions in the meantime. Oh we- yes, I had um, masses of DNCs in the hope that everything would sort of write itself with it, didn't I? had... Um, I did a ladies' physio. Um, after I had a hysterectomy six years ago, I did ladies' physio to see if that could help to, you know, make make my pelvic floor stronger. And none of it helped. And I must have seen three different consultants till I saw Dr. Hextel, who waved his magic wand. Well, tell us what he did, Eileen. Well, what he did was he decided that I must have a low-grade infection. I think I'm right saying that. He'll correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I must have a low-grade infection constantly, not clearing properly. So he put me on three months' worth of antibiotics. And this is the first time for 36 years that I haven't had an infection. And he also thought that as I'm 59 and postmenopausal, part of the problem could be... Um, a little bit of lack of oestrogen so he gave me a, a cream to use and that has also been amazing Wow, and how are you feeling about, you know, feeling so good after such a long period of being unwell? Um, it's just incredible it, it, I mean it doesn't cure everything because, you know, we ladies like me who carry big babies often have other issues but the fact that I, I sort of felt like a fog had been lifted. Now, I wasn't living in fear. And my private life's also improved, obviously, because I'm not constantly worrying I'm going to get an infection. Yeah, that's an interesting um, observation. And, Andrew, can we just bring you in there? Well, you know, I'm just going to bring in Andrew. Um, just stay there, Eileen, on the, on the telephone. Hey. Can, you, can you just tell us a little bit, Andrew, you know, why do you think what you... Um, prescribed worked when it hadn't worked previously for her? Well, first of all, Alan, I'm really pleased that you're doing well. Um, and thank you very much for phoning in. I mean, what's, what, what tends to happen with urine infections is often they're quite, cl- quite quickly clear from the urine uh, with a short course of antibiotics. But some bacteria can stay clinging to the skin of the bladder and then as soon as you finish the antibiotics, they start growing again so you can get a further infection. So often we give uh, a low dose, just one tablet a day of antibiotic for up to three months to really try and clear the bacteria from the bladder and then patients can feel so much better. So does that mean that perhaps Eileen previously hadn't been on the antibiotic for long enough? Yes, I think that's probably what was happening. Also, uh, as you mentioned, the, the Eastern cream is very good. Not only does it make your vagina feel more comfortable, it also makes it slightly more acidic and it gets rid of any harmful bacteria from the vagina. 
and that's the main source of infections. Of course, the vagina is right next to the uh, the urethral water pipe, and then just a short distance up to, into the bladder for ladies. So uh, it's quite common for ladies, particularly after the menopause, to to get infections from the vagina itself. So Eileen, uh, I just want to say, have you got any advice for anyone who's sitting at home with recurrent cystitis, miserable? Would you recommend that they go to a gynecologist? Yes, and I think they should push and push their GP if their GP's unwilling to say, I really need help, it's not fair, and let me see a gynecologist and let them help me because there are, there is, there are means available to help you or help them and that they should be available to everyone and it's not an expensive course of treatment it's just something that would save constant visits to the doctor lovely well listen thank you so much for phoning in and sharing your story thank you so Pleasure. much Eileen thank you take bye care bye bye just, just as a follow-up for that, if you've just had one infection, of course you don't need to see a gynaecologist, but if you've had more than three infections in the year, then you should probably have some tests just to see if you have got an underlying cause for the infections, such as a stone or a polyp in the kidneys or bladder. And that might just simply involve having an ultrasound scan. In a, f- a couple of minutes, we'll have another caller, Jenny, who's going to be telling her us sorry, about her stress incontinence. I mean, that is something that's very common, isn't it? Well, at least one in five ladies will have uh, stress incontinence. Of course, that's not leakage when, you, when you're mentally stressed. It's when you put a physical stress or strain on the bladder, such as coughing, sneezing or exercise. Or dancing vigorously. Yeah, dancing vigorously, particularly after um, alcohol. Uh, a lot of ladies find that they have real problems if they, if they go to a social event, drink alcohol, and then they can start leaking. And why is that? What effect does alcohol have on the vaginal muscle or the bladder? Well, it's a bit of a muscle relaxant. Maybe that's why we can dance a bit better when we drank some alcohol. But uh, oh, no, it all makes sense, Shirley, <laughs> doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> so, Shirley, would you like to introduce our next list, our next uh, caller? Yeah. So, on the phone now, we're going to speak to Jenny, and Jenny wanted to come on and uh, share with us her experience, and I wonder maybe ask um, Andrew as well some questions about her stress incontinence um, and the treatments that she's received and the difference it's made. So, Jenny, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Hello. Thanks very much for calling in. Tell us a little bit about your story. Um, After the birth of my second daughter, I was keen to get back to exercising. Um, I am a keen exerciser, so I I wanted to get into it quite quickly. Um, Did wait until my six-week check, and then it became really apparent straight away that I leaked quite a lot when I was exercising and I was absolutely mortified by Mm. it. I'm quite young Um, well I felt like I was quite young for this to be happening to me Um, and everyone kept saying oh you've got to give it a bit of time, she just had a baby Um, and so I did Um, I kept trying and it just seemed to get worse actually it was really embarrassing it was a horrible horrible Mm. embarrassing thing um so i did eventually go to my gp and um she referred me for some gyne physio which was good i did learn quite a bit from it um but it still didn't do enough for me even sort of sneezing and it was just such an embarrassing problem and i just thought i can't put up with it and that's when i um went to see dr hextel so how long was it between it happening at the beginning and then you seeing Dr. Hextor? I probably, 
um, thinking back, probably about a year. Because wow. everyone kept saying that I needed to give it more time and keep doing my pelvic floor. Um, and that it was kind of, oh, you, you should expect that. You've had two children, not great deliveries. So I think people just tend to part with it. Yeah. And I just couldn't. I really couldn't. I thought, there's, I can't be... I'm 36 years old. I can't have this for the rest of my life. And it's obviously only going to get worse. Um, and that's why I went to see him. So really, looking back now, do you wish you'd gone before those 12 months were up? Um, no, because I, I did try the physio. Um, and I'm glad I tried it. As I say, I did learn a lot. And I think I still... I mean, I'll stop testing. But um, I still think I need to do those exercises. Um, but it just wasn't solving the problem for me at all. So what, what did solve the problem in the end? I had um, a procedure called a TVT. I think that's what it's called. Um, yes, that's right. It stands for tension-free vaginal tape. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was quite an um, easy procedure. Um, I was in and pretty much out within a day. Um, oh, it has been the best... Uh, such a, an amazing relief it's really i have to say changed my life and Thank andrew you can you tell us a little bit about that procedure for people listening yes it's a day case procedure which is done there uh, really quite commonly we do some, at least 100 of those operations each year uh, we, we give patients a short general anesthetic so we put them to sleep for uh, 20 to 30 minutes and then we make two tiny incisions about one centimeter size low down in the pubic hair so there's no visible scars and then a tiny one in the vagina and we place a, a special tape or sling underneath the bladder to give that area more strength and support. So that supports the, the bladder when patients cough, sneeze or, or exercise. And in someone like uh, Jenny, will she, can, ex can she expect to stay leak-free, if you like, for the next, into her, you know, in, in old age? Or? Well, it's a good operation. That at least 90 to 95% of patients are, are significantly improved or cured by the operation. And the long-term results are good. So 20 years after having the procedure, at least 9 out of 10 people are still dry. So there are good long-term success rates, yeah. Okay, great. So, Jenny, we're, we're delighted to hear that things are much improved. And you're back in the gym, I guess. Sorry, say that I said we're delighted to hear that things are very, you know, much improved for you. You're yeah. back in the gym? Yeah, yeah. Back in the gym. I can <laughs> sneeze and cough. <laughs> well done. Well, thank you very much for phoning in. Thank you very okay. much. Thank you. Bye. 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 Jenny, Jenny's story is quite typical that many patients put up with a, with a leakage for, for at least one year, maybe five years before they come forward. Either they consider it normal or they're just too embarrassed to get some help. But they'll definitely have a sympathetic ear if they, if they see the GP or, or get referred to us. Uh, we're there to try and help them uh, through that embarrassment. I think that's really reassuring to hear, Cathy, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, generally us women are a little bit embarrassed sometimes about this kind of topic. And I would always be asking to speak to a female GP or, um, you know, consultant. Can you reassure us, Andrew, that you don't remember any of your patients? <laughs> 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 Only the troubling ones. I remember some characteristics, but not... <laughs> I don't remember them all, that's for sure. <laughs> um, just have we got any more time are we still all right yes one of the other questions i think that came up andrew was um why does urine smell different at different times of the month is that is that true well i don't really think it changes uh, in relation to your periods it, it, it might change of course whether you're a little bit dehydrated the urine smells 
uh, a bit stronger but it's, it's more likely to be related to the diet right uh, particularly if you eat beetroot or, or asparagus that can mm. uh, that can change the smell of the urine temporarily so it probably hasn't uh, uh, doesn't change in effect uh, with it, it doesn't change in association with with changes in your hormones so it's nothing really to worry about just think about what you've been eating no that's another good point yeah there's, there's nothing to be concerned about right okay <laughs> i'm laughing because every time i eat beetroot the next time I go to the toilet, I'm in absolute shock, thinking I'm about to die, and then I remember I ate beetroot. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, Shirley, don't run out of questions now. <laughs> sorry, I'm just anyway. Um, oh yes, another issue that's come up, Andrew, is in America. You know, we hear that girls have their own gynaecologist. You know, from fairly young age, teenagers. That's not really the case here, is it, in Britain, or is it becoming so? No, not really. I think in America and perhaps in France, everyone has their own uh, gynaecologist, like they have their own dentist. But, but here, really, we just go and see a GP or, or, or get referred to a gynaecologist if you have specific symptoms. So if you don't have any problems with your periods or bladder or vagina, you don't need to go for routine checkups. Uh, just, no. just um, I mean, I guess the GPs are busy enough anyway without having to do that sort of thing. So while we, we were in the middle of that interview, we had another question by text, which was about cervical dysplasia in a woman's teenage daughter. And she just wondered what cervical dysplasia, if you, it was the first smear this 19-year-old ever had. And she's had cervical dysplasia and she's going to have laser treatment. And what your opinion is, because the mum's quite worried. Well, I'm sorry to hear she's having those problems. I mean, it's a bit unusual to have a smear when you're in your teenage years. Perhaps she had some specific symptoms uh, to, to justify that. Maybe some bleeding in between your periods or after intercourse. Because uh, cervical screening doesn't really start into your, in your 20s. I, I know that's a bit controversial. Uh, you do read in the papers now and again about a patient who's had cervical cancer when they're very young. But it's extremely rare. So um, I think the government, uh, uh, um, on recommendations of... of uh, scientific bodies have decided not to start screening uh, too young. Otherwise, a lot of people would have unnecessary smears and a lot of the discomfort and anxiety associated with that. And they might pick up some minor changes which might resolve over time themselves uh, without having to have any specific treatment like laser treatment, as you're discussing. Another question is about ovarian cancer. Um, we all know it's a silent killer. It's, it seems to be the one that has less symptoms than other cancers. And we've had a question about early signs and symptoms and if there's going to be a test for people who might have a family history of it. Well, great, great progress has been made in the treatments of cervical cancer. The, the screening tests, the cervical smears, picking up slightly abnormal cells before they get uh, to the cancer stage has really reduced the risk of, of getting cancer of the cervix. We're still looking for a screening test for ovarian cancer, but it's been quite elusive. There doesn't seem to be a, a, a test which predicts whether you're going to get ovarian cancer in the future, unfortunately. So, as you mentioned, it often uh, shows itself quite late. Uh, it's already spread throughout the, the tummy or even further afield. And uh, even if you did a sort of a, a DNA analysis, you know, as people can pay for now, and, and know that ovarian cancer is in their family, could that tell them with a good, I don't know, is it a good way of finding out a percentage, you know, chance of getting it yourself? Well, there are some families where um, there, there, there seems to be several family members with either breast or ovarian cancer. So they are personally at a greater risk of getting uh, that problem themselves. You can have your genes checked to see whether you carry these specific genes. They're called the BRCA1 and 2 genes. And if you have got it, then you might take some action to try and reduce the risk of cancer. So... For example, uh, when you stopped having your periods and gone through the menopause, you might actually choose to have your ovaries removed by keyhole techniques to try and reduce the risk in the future. 
Okay, so if someone's listening who has a family history of ovarian cancer and the mum has died, as in the case of this woman, in her 50s, the best advice for the daughter in her 40s would be to check if she has those genes, is that correct? First of all. Yes, obviously it's a distressing time and you just need to seek advice from your uh, own GP or, or gynaecologist. It's actually got pretty specialised, so you probably would refer to a genetic counsellor who'd take a full family history to find out about if any other relatives had... Uh, died of breast or ovarian problems and then you could decide together whether you're going to have that test i mean some people want to know whether they're at risk of getting ovarian cancer other people say actually i don't really want to know that i suppose um, famously we had um uh what's her name angelina jolie uh was had the b breast cancer gene didn't she so she had a full double mastectomy mm. and hysterectomy Yes, I mean, as I mentioned, you can remove the ovaries to reduce the risk of uh, ovarian cancer, but you probably, want to, you probably wouldn't want to do that before the menopause. Otherwise, you just give yourself a, a whole new set of problems. For example, you might get menopausal symptoms like flushes and sweats. You might get some bone thinning, uh, some vaginal dryness, as we mentioned. So uh, unless you're at a particularly high risk of cancer, you probably would wait, wait till the ovaries have stopped working and then perhaps choose to have them removed then. Okay. Um, Andrew, can you make a comment on, um, you know, women using sanitary products, towels, tampons? Is it an issue with the bleach and then the chemicals? And, you know, a lot of teenage girls seem to be going into health shops to buy those products these days rather than, you know, main sort of street chemists. Well, I don't really hear about that too much in the gynecology clinic, to be honest. I, right. I think they're obviously widely used throughout the world. And, yeah. Uh, and the chemicals seem to be pretty safe. I don't, I don't think they cause any particular irritation or, or allergic reactions in the vaginal skin. So I, I'd be happy with uh, patients using mainstream products rather right. than recommending something okay. else. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, last question is about, <laughs> let's not forget the dads. What about men's bladders being overactive? We have had a question about um, an older gentleman. We're going to fit it in anyway, even if it doesn't quite fit into the remit of the show, but an overactive bladder in a gentleman in his 50s, his partner has asked. Well, I, I was a urologist for a year. That's, that's sort of where I developed my yeah. special interest in, in uh, bladder problems when I was seeing men. I don't really see them anymore, but... Um, I can give some comments on that. I mean, some men can get an overactive bladder like ladies where they suddenly get this uh, uh, urgency to rush to the toilet and they can have problems with leakage. It, it is actually more common when you've got prostate problems. Uh, when your prostate's enlarged, you, your flow slows down, it's more difficult to pass urine. And the bladder has to squeeze really quite powerfully to, to empty. And that powerful bladder can then become overactive and give you the, uh, uh, the frequency going often during the day, the urgency and, and the leakage. So what's the remedy if, 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 you know, this lady sort of watching him rush to the toilet and go to the toilet in the middle of the night? Can he have a, say, a similar treatment? That yes, I mean, again, she should see his GP first and then perhaps seek referral to um, a urologist who would probably sort of check his prostate and uh, maybe even also, also organise an ultrasound scan to see if he's emptying his bladder, make sure there's no polyps in there, make sure there's no infection. Yes, because so it is a symptom, a isn't it, of pr prostate cancer that you need to go to the toilet, is that correct? It is a symptom, but uh, prostate cancer is you know, not, that, not, not the main cause of, of urgency in men. Uh, the majority of men will have a, a benign prostate enlargement, so I don't think she needs to be uh, immediately concerned that her husband's got cancer. There may just be a simple explanation, uh, but of course an assessment by a urologist will, will confirm that. Okay, Shirley, any last questions? Did we cover them all? No, I mean, we've, Andrew, thank you. You have just covered so much stuff and, and I think it's been coming up on our Facebook page if people want to have a look at that. I mean, um, 
No, I think, Andrew, the message that's coming through is GP referral and then don't be afraid to ask. There's certainly specialists out there, aren't there? You know, NHS and obviously private. Yes, definitely. Uh, you don't need to go privately. We've got very good NHS services locally. Right. We've worked really hard to develop a special team. We, we've got physiotherapists, uh, bladder advisors, nurse specialists. Uh, we've been well supported. We've got very good equipment. Um, we do a lot of operations. Uh, we do our best to help people. And, and how uh, would so you say, are we well placed in terms of the rest of the country for our services and specialisms and the number of sort of, you know, in that particular field, you know? Yes, we're, we're working really hard to provide an excellent service within Hertfordshire. It's very rare that we have to send any patients into uh, to London for, for specialist treatment. Which is great, isn't mm. it? So good to know. And what about the sort of the issues around labour care and um, caring for pregnant women in, preg in Hertfordshire? Are we doing okay in terms of beds compared to the rest of the country? Because you often hear such a debate about local maternity services you know, um, being cut or, you know, cuts to services and people worrying about that? Well, we're quite lucky because we've got the several hospitals where patients can have babies. There's obviously Watford, there's Luton, there's the, so there's the hospital. I mean, maternity services have been under pressure. The, the birth rate uh, increased for a little while. And, uh, of course, the Hemel Labour Ward closed and moved uh, in with Watford. Um, I mean, to be honest, I think we need a new hospital, a new uh, maternity unit. I don't think anyone, anyone doubts that. I guess we're just waiting for the money to become available to, to do that. Yeah, but they closed the QE2, didn't they, in Wellen, where I had my son? Um, yes, they did. They've relocated the labour ward to the oh, Lister right. Hospital in Stevenage. And I think they spent quite a bit of money on uh, uh, developing the facilities, which I, which I hear are quite good. I haven't seen them myself, but uh, I've had good reports from patients about it. So, Andrew, how can people get in touch with you if they want to, uh, you know, get in touch and sort out their problems effectively? Well, in gen generally, we, we get referrals from the GPs. Um, we also get referrals from the physiotherapists, bladder advisors and so on, but uh, GPs are normally the, the, the first port of call. Because um, not everyone actually needs to uh, come to the hospital. Sometimes some simple measures like pelvic floor exercises, uh, prolonged course of antibiotics, some Eastern cream, as we discussed, can be effective. And they're, they're easily prescribed by the GP. So uh, GP referral is the best way, I think. Okay. Any last questions, Shirley? You know, no. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew's given us so much information. I think we're going to have Andrew back um, later in the year uh, on the Parents Show to talk about periods, because I think, Andrew, you said there's so much to cover, both with periods and the menopause. We could have a whole show on the menopause, because there's so much to unpick, isn't there, Shirley, mm. about all the issues related mm, to that? Definitely. I mean, in terms of periods, we're really lucky, because... 20 or 30 years ago, there was only really hysterectomy to treat heavy periods, but we've got lots of different options now. There's tablets, there's the marina coil, as we discussed, uh, there's a procedure called an endometrial ablation, where we, we try and uh, burn or destroy the inner lining of the womb, and of course we have got hysterectomy, which can be performed by keyhole techniques rather than having to have uh, a cut made in your tummy. So. So we're, we're very lucky to be able to offer these different treatment options. So we've got enough material to cover an entire show on periods, is that what you're saying? We have on periods <laughs> and definitely on the menopause, there are lots of different symptoms and there's a, a big discussion to be had about the pros and cons of HRT. Absolutely, well. absolutely. And we look forward to welcoming you back if you'll be happy to come back. Yes, if you have me. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Andrew Hextel, um, yeah. consultant gynaecologist. Uh, if you do have any questions that you'd like to get in touch with us, if you've just missed any of the contact information, please don't be afraid to uh, send us a message via our Facebook page. And it's been um, a pleasure presenting tonight and hopefully see you again next week, uh, Thursday, 8 till 9 p.m. on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. 
Neve Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution.